Hello and welcome to this episode of As My Whimsy Takes Me. I'm Kara Sellison. And I'm Sharon Shu. And I'm Angela Hines. Angela is a good friend of ours. She's actually my very oldest friend. We are, gosh, we're coming up. 30 years next, next spring. Yeah. Yeah. Next spring we'll have known each other for 30 years. And Angela is here to represent the people who really like by Fred Herrings. Yes. I love it. We thought it was only fair <laughs> since Karis and I have been slagging on this book ever since we started this podcast to so mean. Yeah, to bring in the other perspective. So thanks for joining us, Angela. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm glad to be here. So Sharon, would you like to introduce the book a little bit before we get started? Uh, I sure will try. I feel like it is a task to <laughs> introduce this book, not only because the mystery is incredibly convoluted and depends a lot on breaking the alibis of not one, but six different people, some of whom disappear, some of whom uh, seem to have airtight stories that start falling apart, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. But also because this book represents such a departure from both the style and the subject matter that we have become accustomed to thus far in the whimsy books. So in Five Red Herrings, you know, you'll remember this book comes right after Strong Poison, a book in which we see Peter fall in love with a woman who is standing trial for murder. And so yeah, the next time we see him, he has gone off to Scotland. He goes to this village, a village that is known for its excellent fishing and its excellent pastoral landscapes. So the very first chapter of the book, we find out, you know, people come here to fish and people come here to paint. And if you have the great fortune of being both a fisherman and a painter, this place is heaven on earth. And Peter, it be, it's obvious really early on that this is a community that knows Peter. He's visited this place many times. One of the things that makes this book different, and this book is very heavy on specifics. This was a place that Dorothy L. Sayers had visited. Yes. And she was being minute in getting the place portrayed accurately. Mm -hmm. Does y'all have a map of Galloway in the front? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes, I think I, so. I, I just love it so much, like, referring to it and stuff, because she tells <laughs> you exactly which roads and things that they're using to get <laughs> between these places. But that's just the kind of reader that I am. I go, oh, there's a map. Wait, they're on this road. Okay, so then, you know, but... Okay, but question for you, Angela, how legible is your map? Because mine is so small that I can't read hardly any of the names. It's not terribly legible, but there's, uh, what is it, Kickabright, and then Dumfries, and... Um, Kirkubri. 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 Sorry, yes. Kirkubri. Um, I can <laughs> yes. see Gatehouse Listeners, do Fleet. not email us about this, please. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry, they told me, and then I got it wrong. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, it's... It's pretty, it's kind of legible, but yeah, it's pretty small. Like, you have to, like, look really closely, but... 
Okay. Um, I, but it gives you like how many miles it is, you know, there's a little thing that shows the, you know, it's very like detailed. So yes, but my, my map infuriates me every time because when I try to reread <laughs> this book in an Angela frame of mind of like this time, I'm going <laughs> to follow all the, the roads and the, the trains. It is impossible for me to do so because the map is so small. And <laughs> I, in like floundering on what we were going to talk about in this episode, I actually did a deep dive into Sayers's letters to see if she, you know, mentions writing this book at all. There's quite a lot, especially her letters to her publishers that's, that's illuminating. But I wanted to tell you guys about this little aside that she has about maps. Also, because it, you know, we've had some listeners write in and say, like, do you guys know if really, really airtight mysteries set in touristy places or, you know, Scotland were a thing because it feels like she's really doing like a pastiche of a certain kind of, I don't know, subgenre. So in September 1930, Sayers writes to her publisher, Victor Galentz, and she's in the middle of composing the book. You know, she, she gives him a bunch of titles that she's kind of been thinking about and how she's working her way through the different alibis and clues. And then she writes, by the way, a very odd coincidence has occurred. This book, in which all the places are real and which turns on actual distances and real railway timetables, is laid in exactly the same part of the country as Freeman Wilcroft's new book, which also turns on real distances and times tables. We only discovered this the other day in the course of, of correspondence, which started about something else. The two plots are, of course, entirely different. It really doesn't matter a pin. Only there's just one point. The unspeakable Collins, as you will see if you look at Croft's book, Sir John McGill's Last Journey, have furnished him with the most mean, miserable, potty, small, undecipherable, and useless map. Scrimshanking, feeble, and unworthy <laughs> to the last degree. Possibly he drew it himself. But in that case, they ought to have taken it away from him and given him <laughs> something better. I look to you as a publisher of repute to allow me a large, handsome, clear, well-executed, <laughs> generous, and convincing map covering both end papers, as this prevents tearing and facilitates reference with a proper scale of miles and everything handsome about it and no pettifogging talk about the expense of large blocks or the cheapness of having one's map made by the office boy. Whatever happens, we must go about 10 better than the intolerable Collins. I think she's talking Harper Collins, the publishers. Um, but I just laughed and laughed when I saw that because I, I don't know. We'd have to run down a first edition to see if she actually got the map of her dreams. But it, it certainly has not come through the ages that way. <laughs> no. A quick aside from editor Karis. Dorothy L. Sayers did get her map. We found a listing on eBay of a first edition. And you can see the beautiful legible map if you check our show notes on our website. So now that I have done a very long aside about maps. <laughs> yes, this is a book that is based on real places and real times tables, though Sayers says not real people. <laughs> not about real people, but she does think real people in her foreword. Yes. Joe Dignam, the kindliest of landlords, is who this book is dedicated to. I think the foreword is really, it's really sweet. Would you like to say more? I, I mean, I didn't really have any, like, what I wrote in my notes was, what a sweet foreword, and that was really it. Oh, that's funny. I wrote, <laughs> next to all the places are real places, and all the trains are real trains, and all the landscapes are correct, I just wrote, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> 
Sorry, I'll try to restrain myself. <laughs> Imagine how much research it took to plot oh, this out. Mercy. Yeah. Well, this was a real, so Kirkubri was a real place, mm -hmm. and Sayers herself toddled up there quite a bit. And it's funny because after the book was published, it actually, you know, I mean, Kirkubri was on the map beforehand, but it there mm -hmm. was so much interest that later on she actually complains to a friend about how she can kind of no longer vacation up there because apparently this book was like a bestseller. It went to multiple printings and then people would hear that, you know, Miss Sayers was in residence mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. go like knock on her door and how to have her oh, sign goodness. their books. Mm -hmm. Um, and this, yeah, you know, I do love the bit where in the forward she says, if I've accidentally given any real person's name to a nasty character, please convey my apologies to that person. Mm -hmm. Even bad characters have to be called something. <laughs> yeah, they do. Should we get past the forward? Should we talk about the first chapter? Yes. The actual book? <laughs> Should we get into the actual book? Oh, um, here's my map. It And my map is extremely small and fuzzy. Right. Of course, like this is in a small mass market paperback, but oh, it's an appalling map. Sarah <laughs> um, would be so disappointed. She would be. She should haunt whoever <laughs> put this together. But yeah, the opening line of the book is if one lives in Galloway, one either fishes or paints. Either is perhaps misleading, for most of the painters are fishers also in their spare time. To be neither of these things is considered odd and almost eccentric. It's fish and paint. Mm hmm. Yes. Yeah, that's what's going on here. That's it. Or or both. Um, <laughs> and we can we get like this long introduction to the community with mm -hmm. hardly any people. Mm -hmm. This you know we have this long descriptive section. We aren't in anyone's point of view. It feels super old fashioned mm -hmm. as an yeah. opening. I mean, like when we think about the other ways the books so far in the series have opened, often we're we're attached to a point of view or. Or there's a kind of narrative omniscience that points itself out. Well, you think of the way Strong Poison started with their roses on the bench and they look like splashes of blood. Yeah. Mm. Where it starts with this like extremely evocative, isolated image mm -hmm. as opposed to this this sketch of a landscape. This is almost more of like a Jane Austen type opening. You know, this reminds me a lot of, I honestly can't remember if it was Emma or Simpson Sensibility that has an opening like this, but. I just read both of them recently, so yeah, it feels Austinian. Describing the describing the area almost as a character instead of mm -hmm. starting with people, you know. Yeah, which I mean, the landscape is very much a character in this book. Yeah, yeah, the landscape is almost more a character in this book than Peter is. Yes, which we I'm sure we'll get into kind of the the lack of any access to Peter's interiority, but mm -hmm. yeah, you know, it almost feels like we don't access. The suspects all kind of feel like paint by numbers to me as well. Um, no pun intended, but we can <laughs> we can talk about that in a bit. I, I did get a kick out of how, despite this like very neutral, almost guidebooky, omniscient narrative voice, there is this little aside of, you know, there are artists who have large families and keep domestics and cap and apron, mm. artists who engage rooms and are taken care of by landladies, artists who live in couples or alone with a woman who comes in to clean etc etc mm -hmm. so kind of again Sayers's interest in like who does the work and mm -hmm. kind of making the point of okay yeah there there are a lot of artists in this community most of whom are men and most of whom like their artistic lives are made possible because of the domestic work of mostly women right mm -hmm. um, and yeah. that's that's paragraph two which I think is just great I love how it mentions that um 
Lord Peter is just, you know, any eccentricity is just kind of shrugged and just, oh, Christ, it's only his lordship. Like, I love that (laughs) he's just kind of like, yeah, he might be, you know, a lord, but he's our lord, so it's whatever, you know, he's, he's... He's a regular around here, so it's fine. Don't yeah. worry about it. Yeah. He's a good chap. Yeah. yeah. He doesn't um, throw his weight around. Yeah. Speaking of who does the work, I want to mention, like, skip ahead a little bit to mention the beginning of chapter five, okay. which is, it opens with the sentence, it amused Lord Peter to lead the simple life at Kirkubri, mm. greatly to the regret of the hotel keepers. He had this year chosen to rent a small studio at the end of a narrow cobbled close blah 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 and um his explanation of this eccentric conduct was that it entertained him to watch his extremely correct personal (laughs) man gutting trout and washing potatoes under an outside tap and receiving the casual visitor with weston ceremony right justice for bunter Bunter. (laughs) poor bunter peter's like no no it's really funny to watch bunter doing this stuff so yeah it's fine (laughs) poor bunter poor bunter Bunter is almost not even mentioned in this book you know like this is like almost the only mention we get of bunter well he he does play an important part in gathering some evidence a little bit later on right yeah he does the ladies man but but he's very much like (laughs) almost absent from this book it seems like i love bunter i wish all all of the books could use some more bunter yeah he's not nearly as present in as he is in in like strong Mm -hmm. poison where he played a much bigger role yeah i do love the fact that um, it also mentions that Bunter is is constantly like going across the street to to there's there are two ladies in the in the house across and he's mm-hmm. always like doing things to help them because he yeah. hates watching them do for themselves. Yeah, it like distresses <laughs> him to watch them make their own dinner. Um. <laughs> oh, Bunter! Oh, and this yeah, they rewarded and him the- with gifts of vegetables and flowers from their garden. Gifts which Bunter would receive with a respectful thank you, miss. His lordship will be greatly obliged. <laughs> now they're for you, Bunter. <laughs> oh, yeah. Bunter. Yes, but sorry, I skipped us ahead a little bit, but it's hard to it's hard to dig into this book because it's so it's like a monolith of stuff. <laughs> you know, it's so it's just like the the mystery is so there's not a handhold for us to really get into except i guess we could talk about the victim mm-hmm. yeah i think i mean yeah maybe we keep wanting to skip ahead to the more funny and pleasant bits because yeah mm-hmm. in in a way like after the pastoral opening you know we dive immediately into this scene between campbell who becomes the victim mm-hmm. and basically everybody he wants to fight with which is the entire world <laughs> Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. everybody, but yeah. a specific some people as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, would you? How about Sharon? You describe that scene for us just briefly. Oh boy. <laughs> okay, so we sort of we pan in on Lord Peter, uh, which is it's really kind of a masterful piece of writing, right? Like you start with mm-hmm. the the village and the landscape and why people go there. And then it's like, okay, and Peter also comes here for X, Y, Z. <laughs> and on this particular evening, he was he was in the bar at an inn, the bar of the McClellan Arms, on the evening that the unfortunate dispute broke out between Campbell and Waters. Campbell, the landscape painter, had had maybe one or two more wee ones than was absolutely necessary, especially for a man with red hair, which we we can let's talk about the representation <laughs> of Scots here. Um, and their effect had been to make him even more militantly Scottish than usual. And then Waters, who's the person that he's giving this 
diatribe to, um, was an Englishman of good yeoman stock, and like all Englishmen, was ready enough to admire and praise all foreigners, but like all Englishmen, he did not like to hear them praise themselves. So Mm. this is, yeah, this is just kind of how we get started. And it is sort of interesting to me that that phrase you know, what whimsy was in the bar mm-hmm. on the evening that the unfortunate dispute broke out between Campbell and Waters. It almost, mm-hmm. it almost sounds like the narrator is recounting a past event that like mm-hmm. a, a well-known kind of local event, right? The unfortunate mm-hmm. dispute. Like it's, I don't know, just the use of the instead of a or and there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. They basically, they get into a fight and call each other slurs. Yeah, we have some some blanked out slurs here. Slurs or like m- maybe just swear words. Blanked out unlike a certain racial slur that is encountered. We encountered it a good bit in A Natural Death. It's also later on in this book. Then we we don't need to get into describing what it is, but it is interesting that these are blanked out and that one is not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we've had we've had listeners write to us and you know, we we very much acknowledge that the world has changed in many ways since Sayers wrote her books. You know, one of the ways of which is like what is considered polite language or, mm-hmm. you know, unspeakable language. But yeah, I think there's, you know, I mean, there's certainly there's certainly some playing off stereotype of of the Scottish people in this book. I have no idea if, you know, in her period, if that would have been considered kind of just as acceptable as as engaging in stereotype about Jewish people or or black people or so forth. I don't think any of it ages particularly well, but yeah, yeah. just kind of interesting even what the what the book itself makes or renders unspeakable or unrepresentable versus what it doesn't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's also interesting too that right after this fight, like we basically get the rundown of the motives. Um, you know, like people are talking about, oh, Campbell's terrible. And, you know, oh, yeah, this guy had a fight with him. And this guy has a fight with him for this reason. You know, like, there's a lot of like, listing of all of the people that Campbell has picked fights with and all of the reasons that everyone's mad at him. So I think that's kind of, you know, interesting how it's placed right after this, you know. Yeah, like he hasn't even been murdered yet, but we've laid the groundwork for who wants to. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, and we also, like, we know that Campbell is someone who has a chip on his shoulder. It described him as being, you know, militantly Scotch. And then, you know, like, after Campbell has kind of been thrown out of the bar, someone else is describing him and talking about how he's from Glasgow and his mother was an Ulster woman. Which, like, meaning that she was from Ireland. Mm-hmm. So, like, there's this idea that he's, that maybe he's not, that he's not properly Scottish. Right. Murdoch who's actually who's the person talking says that he's Noah Scotsman (laughs) (laughs) kind of going back to all those yeah just those different national stereotypes right we saw it with Mm -hmm. um what are names uh in Clouds of Witness with uh Cathcart and how he took after the French part of his family and so forth so uh everyone's always just like jonesing to disown yeah the 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 poor actors among themselves (laughs) It's not really Scottish. Right. No. <laughs> not like us. Not properly. Yeah. So Campbell gets thrown out of the inn. And I think before we talk about his untimely demise, it's pretty fascinating to me that the, the end of chapter one, we get an entire scene from Campbell's point of view. 
And I think it's the first time we've had a case where we're like in the victim's point of view at all, because Peter usually comes on, you know, after the body has been found. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is it the only case where we ever? It's certainly the only one I can think of right now. Yeah. So, so not only is it, you know, does it stand out for being different in that way, right? Of, of getting inside the point of view of the victim, but also my goodness, what a deeply violent and like vicious mm-hmm. point of view that is as well. Right. So there's, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just, he's, I don't know if this is in here to make us also like to make us dislike Campbell as well or to, yeah, I don't know. Let's discuss. <laughs> Why is this here? I, yeah. I love the phrasing of, you know, it says Campbell chugging fitfully homewards. Like just like those three words, like, you get such a sense of, like, he's so angry and so, like, raring for a fight just with chugging fitfully homewards. I just love that that turn of phrase there. Yeah. But, yeah, it's really, it is really interesting to get it from his point of view about how all of these people are terrible and yeah, and, 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 and that fellow Farron too. Farron would hear about it, you know, <laughs> like, he's He's just thinking to himself about how all of these people are, are terrible. And, yeah. And why and not go straight back away him. and have the thing out with Baron? Why not? After all, what did it matter? You know? And we get that hint of, you know, something that we'll go into more in a little bit here, but mm-hmm. um, Mrs. Farron mm-hmm. and her her role or yeah or lack thereof in this situation. That having her, her name dropped here and the fact that mm-hmm. Campbell has this attachment to her mm-hmm. and that then, you know, we don't get more explanation of like what that situation actually is until later on. Yeah. 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 But just the, the, the violence of the language that mm-hmm. his point of view is connected through, right? Angela, that you were pointing out, like he, he stopped the car and lit a cigarette smoking fast and savagely. If the whole place was against him, he hated the place anyhow. Farron was a devil, a beast, a bully. Like everything about him is just really, really keyed up. And then the scene ends with a violent squealing of brakes and an angry voice demanding. Uh, I feel like I shouldn't say the curse words because mm. <laughs> we have a clean podcast. <laughs> um, what the. Elided. Alighted, are you doing, you fool? Sitting out like that in the alighted middle of the road right on the bend. Uh, And then Campbell turns and he hears, so he's, you know, sort of blinded by the glare of headlights. And he hears a voice say with a kind of exasperated triumph, Campbell, of course, I might have known it couldn't be anybody else. And the scene ends and the next day and the next chapter begin with Campbell found dead. Yes. Karis, would you like to talk about the circumstances? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Not it, you. (laughs) (laughs) It's so, like, it's just so difficult to try and break this mystery down into bite-sized chunks. It's so difficult to summarize without it just becoming this extremely long. (laughs) But, you know, like, we kind of, we have this weird scene where Campbell, you know, is spoiling for a fight and he sees someone to get in a fight with but we don't know who that someone is and then the next chapter we find out in the chapter heading in the chapter title that Campbell is dead and we're with Whimsy we aren't really in Whimsy's head but we're we're kind of like next to him (laughs) narratively and he's being told about the circumstances and we find out that Campbell's body was found up at the minute which is 
you know, there's some some cliff edges that lead down to the water. You know, his body has been found tumbled down the rocks and in the water. His easel with a partially finished painting you know, up on the, the cliff edge. And so, like, the assumption is that he's fallen down and, and gotten killed. Mm-hmm. And Peter, in his, his nosy way, is asking a few questions. And Mr. Murdoch, who's the proprietor of the McClellan Arms, is telling Peter about it and saying that maybe he wanted water for his painting. And, and Peter's like, mm, he wouldn't want water for oil paints. What did he want? Mm-hmm. Like, he's, he's already questioning the circumstances. And he's just like, I think I'll go along. And uh, and just just see Peter toddles along to the to the minute to see them recovering the body. Yeah. To see what there is to see. <laughs> yeah. Says um, a sky full of bright sun, rolling cloud banks, hedges filled with flowers, a well-made road, a lively engine and the prospect of a good corpse at the end of it. Lord Peter's <laughs> cup of happiness was full. He was a man who <laughs> loved simple pleasures. Oh, right. Peter. Oh, Peter. <laughs> well, and I love when he gets there and the sergeant looks up and it's like, oh, yeah, they had met already. And he was prepared for Whimsy's interest in corpses. <laughs> <laughs> Just like, oh, yes, it's his lordship. He loves dead people. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. So Peter starts scouting the scene, having it described to him. And, and you know, the narrative is also kind of following what he's hearing and what he's seeing and the the painting that is on Campbell's easel and the the things that Peter finds when he's rifling through you know the corpse's pockets and the bag that's next to the easel and and so forth and kind of as the scene goes on Peter gets like more and more excited um says whimsy's air of idleness had left him his long and inquisitive nose seemed to twitch like a rabbit's as he turned the satchel upside down and shook it in the vain hope of extracting something more from its depths and mm-hmm. you know, he clambers down to the stream and looks about mm-hmm. there and then all of a sudden we have a very deliberate cutaway mm-hmm. yeah. yeah like and like we've had like three pages of detailed description of what Peter is looking at right mm-hmm. yeah. it's very similar to the bit in unpleasantness at the Bologna club where we get the description of everything that Peter sees when he's examining the general Finthman's clothing right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. except even longer <laughs> well there's so, a lot like, of details that you need yeah to know. He, but he, go, yeah. he goes through all of Campbell's painting things mm-hmm. he goes through Campbell's jacket he goes through Campbell's mm-hmm. bag and he doesn't find what he's looking for and so he goes yeah to talk to DL, the the sergeant. And he tells the sergeant, and like the cutaway says, here mm-hmm. Lord Peter Whimsy told the sergeant what he was to look for and why. But as the intelligent reader will readily supply these details for himself, they are omitted from this page. Yeah. <laughs> and I am the sort of reader who immediately flips <laughs> back and figures out what was missing and goes, aha! <laughs> Angela is the intelligent reader! <laughs> Cars and Sharon are... I mean, I did have to go back and go, wait, okay, wait, what exactly was he looking for? But then, you know, like, it's not obvious, but it's, you can figure it out. Right. If you want to. And I am the type of reader who will, who will blissfully carry on knowing that I will be told at some point. Yeah. I think you can say, you you can figure it out if you, if you pay close attention. Sayers always plays fair. Yes. Mm -hmm. But there is... There's like a slight amount of uh, technical knowledge that you would need. Like very, very slight. Yes. But I mean, like a little bit, I guess. But like there's 
I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to say it too much. But <laughs> Angela's just very much just like, no, uh, it's easy. It's. I mean, yeah. I can't. It's not hard, you yeah. guys. <laughs> but I mean, I think that's that's one of the things that I love about this book is that she mm-hmm. gives you literally every detail that you need to work it out yourself, which is yeah. the thing that I yes. love doing with mystery books. I was telling Karis at one point when I was a kid, you know, I was like ten or something, and I was reading this like Nancy Drew book. And the whole thing hinged on this one character's eyebrows that were mentioned like once, but Nancy knew that it was a case of mistaken identity because this guy was clearly someone else because of his eyebrows. And I was so angry. I threw the book across the room because I was like, that's not fair. You gave me all of these other clues and you didn't even mention that and like bring attention to it. So it wasn't fair. I was so mad. I was so mad. But I'm like, I love that Sayers always plays by the rules and gives you what you need. But then this one especially. This one especially. Yeah. I mean, is. this isn't, yeah, this isn't a case of Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, exactly. Like, knowing, you know, Holmes knows all this stuff about tobacco that the normal reader mm-hmm. can't be expected to know, right? Like, there, there is yeah. a, it, it doesn't suspend disbelief that most people who are reading this book would know kind of enough about mm-hmm. art to be able to pick up on, on the clue. Yeah. 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 So Peter says, you know, there's something missing. Look everywhere for it. And if we can't find it, it means murder. And mm-hmm. another funny extract uh, or interesting extract from Sayers's letters is that she, before she hit on calling the book Fried Red Herrings, she originally wanted to call it The Six Suspects, but somebody else had mm-hmm. already published a book with that title. Oh, no. Yeah. So she proposes <laughs> to Mr. Galen. She says, how about Six Unlikely Persons or The Body in the Burn or The Murder at the Minnick? And then she draws like a, you know, parenthesis around all of that and goes mm-hmm. dull. Or The Missing Object or There's One Thing Missing. Mm-hmm. And she describes to him in this letter about how she's kind of come up with exactly this paragraph that we just read, right, where she's going to mm-hmm. leave it to the reader to figure out what is the thing that's missing. And mm-hmm. uh, she says, substitute a blank page in which the reader is invited to use his wits. And originally, she nice. said the, the missing paragraph can be printed if desired in a sealed page at the end of the book, or it may mm-hmm. merely be supplied by whimsy in conversation in the final chapter, which is what she ultimately mm-hmm. goes for. Yeah. 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 Which there's something about this aside that, you know, we kind of talked about the beginning feeling, you know, like an Austin or, mm-hmm. you know, like an older book. I, this aside also feels very old fashioned. Yeah. And like, I can't put my finger on exactly what it reminds me of, but it does feel like the type of nar- like narrative voice that you would get in a, in a, a, a more Victorian. Mm-hmm. You know, like where yeah. the narrative voice is intrusive. Mm-hmm. And where the narrator is talking to the reader. Like, yeah, you know, the the intelligent reader will readily supply the details, you know. Yeah. Like, like that's it. Like that kind of device is something that I kind of associate mm-hmm. with like a more Victorian novel. But I don't know. Like I, I can't put my finger quite on what, like my brain is trying to connect it to something, but the connection's not quite there because I only have two brain cells in general and i'm down to one <laughs> because of, because, because pandemic. of the pandemic yeah. i have pandemic brain yeah. um that's unfortunate so yes so i don't know i don't know but it does like reading this mm-hmm. book in context with the rest of the series it feels very much like an odd duck it is it very much is yeah it's very distinct among the series books mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we've we've talked before about how 
you know, she people had complained about the love interest <laughs> in Strong Poison and kind of the strong character portraiture. So in a little way, this was maybe Sayers' spiteful, like, okay, they want an airtight mm-hmm. mystery, I'll give them an airtight <laughs> mystery with no love, you know, barely any interiority, like, mm-hmm. no character But so many train tables. So many trains. There are train so tables. Many but trains. also, this is one of the few ones I feel like where there's such a an ensemble of, because there's these six people who all have equally equally good motives and also equally shabby alibis, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like she does a great job of, like, balancing all of that out. There's a scene near the end where, like, all of the police are, like, talking about, oh, well, it was definitely this guy because of these reasons. And here's the timetables that match. And, oh, no, it was definitely this guy because of these reasons. And here's the times that match. And they all do such a great job of putting this information together that if they didn't miss a couple minor clues like yeah it's it's very plausible so i just love i love it so i don't have anything else to say sorry that was a weird transitiony yeah. thing but <laughs> no we do that all the time it comes okay. out in the wash okay when we edit it yeah. i, I like, smooth out no things. you know what let me rant about how much i love this book <laughs> well somebody well, should you know, yeah <sighs> someone should yeah. and it's just it's so fascinating to me because we're such different types of readers, but mm-hmm. we love so many of the same books. Yeah. But we, our Venn diagram <laughs> is not a perfect circle. Right. And this yeah. book is one of the ones where we it's do one of the main that. ones that it goes, wait, really? Yeah. <laughs> you like this? <laughs> Which it's not that I don't, mm-hmm. it's not that I hate this book. Like I don't right. want our listeners to get the impression that I hate this book, but having this is one of those books where having read it once Mm -hmm. I don't want to read it again because like I've read it I know how the mystery works I know what Mm -hmm. you know the the clue is I think it's really clever but it doesn't have anything that draws me back the way the rest of the books in the series do right yeah because it doesn't engage me emotionally oh the thing you're so character oriented when you read I am um I want to feel things, Angela. You want to feel feel things. things. (laughs) I am. I'm very much interested in world building, Mm -hmm. Um, and so this Mm -hmm. one does such a great job of like giving you the feel of the place and the community and who these people are. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, and the landscape and the and the landscape and yeah, all the specifics really draw me in. Whereas they don't draw you in at all. So they do not. I mean, I appreciate them as part Mm -hmm. of a greater whole. Yeah, but they aren't something that makes a book rereadable for me. So like rereading this book is a little bit of a slog because I'm just like, I don't have that motivation of getting to the solution of the mystery mm-hmm. since I, I'm just like, I remember how it ends. Right. And getting through all the timetables and the alibis and the this and the that <laughs> right. and the, and the debunked mm-hmm. alibis and the mm-hmm. yeah. debunked theories. Like, yeah. 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 None of that is, None of that is, is enjoyable for me. This mm-hmm. is definitely a case of it's not that I don't like it because it's there's something empirically wrong with it, but no, it is yeah. a case it's of just, being a very different type of reader. It's just not your cuppa. That's you it know, is not fine. my cuppa. Well, and I think something I said to Carson in an earlier conversation was that I love the way that uh, Sayers does all these red herrings, and like it's literally titled Five Red Herrings," but yes. there's so much like. Usually in a mystery, I can spot a red herring and I just go, oh, well, it's clearly not that guy because he's being way too obvious. And in this <laughs> one, it's like they're all just plausible enough 
like, yeah, Whimsy debunks all, you know, the five red herrings at the end, but it's like, before he does it, it's just like, oh yeah, it totally could be that guy, you know? Like, it kind of feels like the, the murder mystery dinner parties, mm. where it's like, mm. everyone has a motive, everyone has opportunity, you don't know until you get to the very end of this dinner party, like, who the murderer actually is, because it, it does feel exactly like a murder mystery I just put it together game. just now, and I was like, hey, those are things you- I also love. <laughs> You could make this into a murder mystery dinner party game with yeah. with hardly any effort. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's funny because when I do murder mystery dinners, I'm always just much more interested in like inhabiting the character assigned to me and mm-hmm. yes. uh, like interacting and doing improv with yeah the other characters. Yeah. And it's very yeah. much like, eh, it'll, it'll, we'll, we'll figure out who it is in the end. Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, it'll tell us if we get to the end and we haven't figured it out. It's fine. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Everyone calm down. I like to figure things out. I like to be clever. I'm sorry. You do. <laughs> you should. You should. Angela, you should tell the anecdote about why you why it's important to you to be clever. Okay. So I realized recently that between The Hobbit and there's a song called Devil in the Garden that, you know, my dad used to listen to all the time when I was a kid, where it's this, you know, riddle game between, you know, this folkloric devil figure and this young woman. Mm-hmm. And so there's these two riddle games that were in my imagining of the world. And so I was just absolutely sure as a very small child, like around, you know, five or six, that someday my life was going to depend on being clever. <laughs> like I needed to be able to figure things out and be clever because someday my life would depend on it. You know, like there will be a <laughs> riddle game which might cost you your life or your soul depending on who you're up against, you know. So like cleverness is a very important trait. Yeah, this makes all the I sense love in that. the world. Yeah, I know, yeah. it explains yeah. everything. So about the book. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, the thing we're here. The for. thing we're here to talk about. <laughs> Peter quickly twigs on to the fact that it must have been the murderer who did the painting mm-hmm. that's on the Campbell easel. So he narrows down to like, okay, the the murderer has to be a good enough artist to be able to mimic Campbell's style. That's how he's mm-hmm. able to rule out like part of the population of Kirkupri. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other half of the population that wants to kill Campbell. <laughs> Living in Kirkupri, we have Michael Waters, who had quarreled with Campbell the previous night and threatened to break his neck. We have Hugh Farron, who lives alone with a wife who is apparently... Uh, very much attached to him, but he's jealous of Campbell. Matthew Gowan, known to have been publicly insulted by Campbell and refuses to speak to him. And then living in Gatehouse of Fleet, we have uh, Jock Graham, who uh, was known to be carrying on a feud with Campbell and to abduct him in the fleet after being assaulted by him. We have Henry Strachan, who was known to have quarreled with Campbell and turned him off of the golf course. Uh, Ferguson was his neighbor, and they had a fight about a wall. So those are the six suspects and their grievances with Campbell. I feel like one of the things that frustrates me about the book is how long it takes us to just gather everybody's alibis. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Because yeah. we get this list early on, but then it's like, oh, this person, like, yeah, this person went off by train. This person went sailing. Like, they just, they spend so much the early part of the book just waiting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, yeah, yeah I just find it kind of exhausting <laughs> right you're just like just just get us to the thing already why are we having to wait so long yeah because yeah. i do i mean i also i i do enjoy like trying to figure out the mystery when i read one i'm not entirely like oh i don't care but i think it mm-hmm. just 
it feels like it takes so long to even assemble all the the different things I'm supposed to be figuring out. Right. That yeah. yeah so that by the time, you know, I, I'm like, okay, all the information is is in front of me. I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. It just it it feels. You're almost at the end of the book at that point. So yeah, it's kind yeah. Of like, all right. Well, whatever. Yeah. So I think maybe in that sense, yeah. it it feels less than fair. Of like, oh, but I don't. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe Peter, we could say Peter has a similar mm -hmm. issue with the investigation, right? Mm -hmm. That's why it takes him so long. But I just, yeah, I find, maybe I find the, like, grunt work of detecting very, <laughs> but, like, <laughs> similarly to Peter. If I if I had a bunter or a Sergeant Deal to send about, or, I would do that. Or a too. Parker, yeah. <laughs> like, I feel like in most of the mysteries, like, this is what Parker does. Mm -hmm. He has to track down all the people and figure out all the things, you know. Yeah. Yeah, but it is a lot of like, okay, well, I'll go talk to this guy. Oh, he's not home. Oh, he's he left, you know. Well, I'll go talk to this guy. Oh, well, he's not home, you know. Like, there's a lot of whimsy walking up to people's doors and knocking, and, and they're not there. So. Yeah, it's very frustrating to me as a reader. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Why can't everyone just stay put? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it just circles back to Sharon, you and I being character-oriented mm -hmm. readers, because I'm just like... Mm -hmm. I'm happy to get all this information, but I want it couched in among emotional goings on. Right. You know, and like mm -hmm. it being sort of so dry mm -hmm. is is just like the <laughs> <laughs> You know, I'm just like yeah. I I I'm just like, okay, this is all salad, where's the meat? <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Where's the beef? I was just looking right at the end of chapter three, there's a line um, where it says, Lindsay looked his watch. Jock Graham was at present the most promising candidate for criminal honors, but since he had disappeared, there was nothing to be done about him for the present. And I feel like that just kind of sums up, you know, y'all's frustration with this yeah. whole early part of the book. Like, well, we think it could be that guy, but we don't know where he is. Yeah, can't do anything about it, and so mm -hmm. everything is useless. Mm -hmm. Everything's on hold until we can talk to those guys. Yeah. Yeah, <sighs> yeah it... Yeah, it's just, it's it's tricky because it's so, like, I do admire the way this book is put together. Right. But also, I don't want to read it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, how much of that has to do with the, like, just scrupulous rendering of dialect on the page? Some of it is definitely that mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. it is, it's a, it's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and I... Like, as a personal preference, I almost never like dialect written out. Mm -hmm. You know, like, I, I feel like accent clues can be given in different <laughs> ways than writing out accents phonetically because just don't ever feel like it, it goes as well as it, as I would like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It always feels like something that should be, like, that feels comedic mm -hmm. and it makes it hard to take those characters seriously, which really feels like a disservice to, Mm -hmm. the actual people and their their actual like accent and way of speaking mm -hmm. so like i don't and like i don't know how like actual scottish people feel about yeah feel about it but <laughs> to me as a reader it feels frustrating and it feels mm -hmm. kind of tonally off balance because i associate, associate phonetically like with yeah. yeah right it feels like a parody to me mm -hmm. and so like yeah I'm, it's distracting and annoying. It just slows me down and like I have to read over it like twice or three times sometimes depending on how convoluted the sentence is to go, what are they saying? What's going on? You know? And so, <laughs> yeah. um, 
There yeah. is a humorous part where um, the inspector is talking to the, the British butler, Alcock. Yes. And he says, your name is Halcock, is it not? And the butler is like, Halcock. H-A-L-L? There is no H in the name. Hey is the first letter, and there is only one hell. You know, and it's just like, it's really funny, you know, just in the middle of this book where it's just like this thing about the accents, you know, yeah. being so different. Yeah. yeah. And then he's like, uh, you know, the, the inspector asks who drove Mr. Gowan off Hammond, the chauffeur. Hammond? Is that the inspector? Hammond. Hammond's at the butler. Halbert. Halbert's yeah, Hammond. Yeah, with a H. That that scene does make the rest of it, I feel like, somewhat worthwhile. Really, really funny. And I feel like that's a really Mm -hmm. good use of like Mm -hmm. the accent difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Whereas I appreciate it much less when it's the rest of the book and it's Mm -hmm. writing the Scottish accent out. Mm -hmm. Especially when there's whole like conversations where it's two or three people that are Scottish speaking and you're going, okay. All right. There's important information on this page. I gotta find it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe not fair to bury the the clues that way. Yeah. yeah. Gosh, it's so hard to disseminate this mystery. Mm-hmm. Like, where, I'm just like, where do we go next? Um, I mean, I would love to talk about the little girls, but I don't know if it's time for that yet. But um, just as I'm flipping through my book, I'm like, oh, hey, and here's where we're talking about Strachan and. Then we come to the part with Myra where Winsy talks to her. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love it so much where she's like, he's talking about the black eye that her, her dad has. You know, she's like, yes, isn't it? I asked him if he'd been fighting and he told me not to be impertinent. I like fighting. Bobby Craig gave me a black eye once, but I made his nose bleed and they had to send his suit to the cleaners. And she's so proud. Um, <laughs> and she's like, you know, Winsy tells her that young women ought not to fight. Why not? I like fighting, <laughs> you know. <laughs> And how she's going to grow up and have a pistol and a beautiful evening dress and lure people to opium dens and stick them up. <laughs> what has this child been reading? Right? I love it. And she and she tells Peter that I'd better marry you because you've got such a fast car. That would be useful, you see. You know, I just I love her so much. Just she's such a like vivid child, you know. Yeah. Especially with so many of the other characters being kind of not as well rounded. I feel like, you know, Mm-hmm. she's so vibrant on the page so yeah. yeah and it makes me think of we it will be a few books before we are introduced to the little girl in gaudy night mm-hmm. but in gaudy night there's a little girl who talks about wanting to have a motor car and have and, mm-hmm. and run a, a garage mm-hmm. yeah and like i think it's it's really interesting that these these three little girls that are the the I can't. Mm-hmm. Are there other little girls in any of the other books? I think like these are. Um, I'm gonna say there's, there's two in this book. There's the little girl in Strong Poison. Bill, Bill the Lock picks. Oh, she's and she's really she's cute. But like, yeah, we have these three little girls, and Sayers yeah. kind of like makes them all rowdy little like feral, <laughs> yeah, feral children, which is very accurate, I think, for yeah for many young girls. Well, and there's, yeah, because Helen Smith is mentioned later in the book, and um, she gives some evidence because she was out, you know, her parents were out to dinner, so she was out with the boys trying to, I think she says poaching rabbits or something like that. <laughs> She's just running the field with the boys when she happens to, to witness this thing, you know, and so... Yeah, it's yeah. just very interesting. And then she's like, oh, it was almost 10, so I had to run home, you know. 
I just love these little girls who are very rowdy and wild. And, you know, I would have loved to be friends with them when I was a kid, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's striking the the sort of narrative importance given to the young girls mm-hmm. because they witness exactly. really, like, the yeah, the witnessing of really key, key moments, especially in a mystery where so much of the the action of the murder is about like the the world of men right the violent world of men or the the homosocial space between these these different mm-hmm. male artists and in in some ways it feels like a really masculine book it is mm-hmm. yeah well we have what five police officials so and they're many. all men you know there's so many police in this book yeah not not to mention parker who gets a you know like they call him up and ask him for some stuff yeah so they talk to him but like there's like five who are like on the scene mm-hmm. yeah it's a very very masculine book but then these little girls are so critical to figuring things out yeah speaking of the women in this book which there are are not a lot and you know most of them like, they have important roles, but their actual presence on the page is kind of brief. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the women who plays a large role is Mrs. Farron. Kind of touched on her before. But the motivation for her husband, Mr. Farron, to be a suspect is that Campbell kind of carried a torch for Mrs. Farron. And, mm-hmm. you know, would come and hang out in her sitting room. And her husband didn't like it and, and didn't yeah. like him and, all, like, was would come in and kick him out and you know in that brief scene that we get that's from Campbell's perspective he talks about how he was visiting you know he's he's reflecting mm-hmm. on the fact that he was he wanted to sit in the cool green sitting room of Miss like Mrs. Farron mm-hmm. and and be soothed by her mm-hmm. and that Farron had come in and ruined it and kicked him out yeah and you know, like in in Campbell's eyes, Mrs. Farron is like the only nice person, the only person who likes mm-hmm. him, the only person that he likes. And when we're introduced to Mrs. Farron, she's her goal in life is to be a womanly woman. Mm-hmm. In like it's almost a like it feels like it's a mania with her. Yeah, and like like speaking as an ex evangelical. Um, mm. someone who was raised in homeschooling circles, she feels very familiar where like she's someone who being hyper feminine is her idea of a ministry. Mm-hmm. She sees herself mm-hmm. as creating a refuge. She wants to like embody that kind of Victorian idea of the angel in the house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like she sees that as her role and her purpose in life is to be genteel and dainty and restful and to make everything mm-hmm. around her beautiful mm-hmm. and it's like she's borderline fanatic about it mm-hmm. yeah. yeah and i have oh man i have such a flinch reaction <laughs> to as someone who is not any of those things but who was mm-hmm. raised with that as the ideal yeah yeah well i mean like not so much like by my parents but i was definitely raised around that atmosphere that was very present in like the culture Mm -hmm. there were definitely people that we know people that we still know who adhere to that as an ideal and i am i'm not about it like it's it's one thing for it to be someone's preference but mrs farron obviously thinks that it should be all women's mm-hmm. preference that to be a woman is to is to be working to embody this ideal and i'm just like mm, nope nope no 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 yeah well and i think cars your your point that she's hearkening to 
you know, what at this point would have been a very old fashioned ideal of the Victorian angel in the house. I think even even the way she's described, right? She Right. The narrative says she looked like a ghost painted by Byrne Jones in one of his most pre-Raphaelite moments. She even she name checks the Lady of Shalott, which is an Arthurian story, but also yeah. very, very famously painted by um oh my God, Waterhouse? I Nate, one of the pre-Raphaelites and you know like written by Tennyson so like yes. a very Victorian and it's like a Victorian depiction of an even older story of a certain mm-hmm. Victorian myth of chivalry right I mean it's just like all yeah. of it is just constructed it's not right has nothing to and, do with real history right yeah. and like you know bringing up the Lady of Shalott like someone who's role is to be contained mm-hmm. and that if she breaks loose from that containment it brings disaster like what yeah. like what's the subtext there <laughs> so subtle yeah well and it's I don't know I, I kind of want to keep chasing this because I think there's such a there's like an interesting art historical aspect to it too right where yeah, yeah. like the the really famous painting of the lady of Shalott the depiction of her she's in the room weaving and the mirror is behind her and you as a spectator are like looking in through the window but like the the whole thing is within a a the frame of a painting as well right she's like doubly contained mm-hmm. and i yeah. i actually got to see the painting in person a couple years ago it was touring and the thing is the size of it's larger than life like maybe nine feet tall yeah. it's incredible the mirror has just cracked and she's like standing in the middle and like the the thread is around is wrapping around is it william holman hunt yes it is hunt. Ah, it is hunt. okay so i took part of my qualifying exam in this period and I'm like I I can I have to give back like my half of the degree I did not finish <laughs> if I can't name this yeah no well I mean the thing is is that there's so many Lady of Shalott paintings mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there's so many pre-Raphaelite Lady of Shalots. yes all those men had a giant boner for this story about a woman <laughs> who can't leave her room <laughs> sorry mom oh. don't listen to this one <laughs> I mean you're you're not wrong. Not wrong. You're not wrong. Not wrong. Okay. But yeah, so I mean like Mrs. Farron and like she also she's like spinning, right? When Whimsy goes to see her, she she's like not only is she embracing this kind of throwback feminine femininity, I feel like she's very deliberately deploying it within this community of artists, right? Like she, mm-hmm. not only does she think she needs to exist to make things pleasant, mm-hmm. but like she, she exists to be looked at. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. wait. Sharon, yes. Sharon, there is a Waterhouse painting of Lady of Shalott where it, the mirror has just cracked and the thread is wrapped around her. Okay. So I don't know which one you're thinking of, but one is Waterhouse <laughs> and one is Hunt. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so hard to narrow it down, especially since oh we gosh. aren't like looking at them together. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but we'll we'll, we'll oh put in the show notes uh, which one Sharon was was thinking we'll of. We'll put we them will. all in the show notes. <laughs> so, I have I have a confession for you guys. What is your confession? The very first time I read this book, I suspected Mrs. Barron was the, actually the murderer. Oh. I think I did too. Yeah, because it's like we have all of these men that we suspect but what if it was Mrs. Barron? I mean, that would have made Mrs. Farron so interesting. So much more yeah, interesting right? than she is. Right? Yeah, so the first time I read through it, I was like, okay, wow, Mrs. Farron's gonna be the murderer. Oh my gosh. And then I got to the end, I was like, oh, I was completely wrong. You know, so. 
but I feel like it would have been really interesting since this book is so incredibly masculine, you know. Mm-hmm. There's there's these six men who are the suspects, and there's Peter, and there's all of these policemen, and there's all these other men who get mentioned, you know. Yeah. And the only woman who's a real character is Mrs. Farron, you know. Mm-hmm. I think I had a moment, I mean, I'm trying to reconstruct my state of mind when I first read it. But I think I had a moment where I was like, oh, is it going to turn out to be none of none of yeah. the, the men? And I don't I don't think I went so far as to suspect Mrs. Farron. But I, I, yeah, I was sort of like, I, I wonder if it'll be mm-hmm. just like not any of the, the ones we've been led to believe. Yeah, yeah. Which would have been cheating. Like that would have been so oh, right. Yeah, no, that'd be right. It would have been cheating. It would not have been playing strictly fair to be like, here are the six suspects and five of them are red herrings, yeah. you know, and then it'd be not one of them. Speaking of women, there is one other woman that is um, somewhat important in this book. Oh, that's right. I always forget about her. Mrs. Smith Lemissurier. I feel like I butchered that name and I'm very sorry, but Mrs. S.L., you know, comes in <laughs> to provide an alibi for someone you know, one of the suspects, and, oh, he was with me all night, you know, <laughs> what time did he leave? About nine o'clock. Oh, okay, so he doesn't have an alibi for, you know, the Tuesday morning. Well, no, but I thought it was the Monday night he needed the alibi for, you know, like, <laughs> she comes forward, and then later that very same person is like, oh my gosh, why did she do that? And so then he has to come in and give his actual alibi mm-hmm. of where he was, but you know it's just it's very interesting let me let me get to the page because i wrote in my notes mrs smith lemessier lemessier <laughs> you also are butchering it <laughs> yeah it's okay i'm sure someone will tell us how to pronounce it on twitter mrs sl yeah mrs sl <laughs> yeah but for one thing like i always forget about her when i reread the book i'm just like who are you oh yeah, right that yeah <laughs> yeah like she shows up and it's like oh yeah but I did, about that. like, this time reading it, I put down in my notes um, that she kind of is a mirror of Mrs. Farron mm-hmm. in that she's also this extremely feminine mm-hmm. presenting person. But, you know, whereas Mrs. Farron is all about presenting herself as completely pure and angelic, Mrs. S.L. is she presents herself as as a widow and like it says what chapter are we in we're 18 18 yeah we know there's this kind of this little thing where she it says that she was accustomed to say that the rents in scotland were so low and she had to do the best she could with her poor little income Mm -hmm. it did not matter where she lived she would add sadly since her husband's death she was all alone in the world Mm -hmm. and like she's like someone who's conscientiously feminine conscientiously dainty it also mentions that Peter had been introduced to her the previous year <laughs> and it afterwards expressed the coarse opinion that the lady was out for blood. Mm-hmm. So yeah. like you just, you have these two presentations of extreme femininity, but expressed very differently. Mm-hmm. And about Mrs. SL, there's the, the phrases used her, her manner was plaintive and artless, her age rather more than it appeared. And young men who knew no better were apt to see in her a refreshing revelation of an unfashionable womanliness. Mm-hmm. So, <sighs> yeah, she's sort of a foil for Mrs. Farron, you know. Yeah, like, and like she's she shows up and then she she's mostly just there to put a wrinkle into mm-hmm. the plot by supplying this alibi. And then like the person she's trying to supply the alibi for like 
disavows her immediately. Like it's very obviously yeah. that she was just kind of trying to make that person indebted to her mm-hmm. because she is conniving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you guys also see Mrs. SL as um like a narrative echo of Mrs. Grimethorpe? Oh, you're yeah, you're right. Yeah, I mean, just in the one case, we have a woman who could actually provide an alibi for a suspect, but it involved, like, because they were having an affair, but it would involve her sort of, like, exposing all of this to the public and to a really jealous husband versus Mrs. SL, like, very blithely, like, using that same story, but, you know, it's a lie to kind of try to indebt someone else to her. And they're both foreign, so. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I can I can see that, except that she's less sympathetic for sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. she is, but it's very interesting that it's the exact same. Well, he was too short. He couldn't tell you where he was because he was with me, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas he comes back from where he was and eventually is just like, Well, I'm not gonna tell you where I was, but I wasn't with her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but in a way, Mrs. SL is I mean, she is a she is a bit of an outlier to Angela's point about how women are often key witnesses mm-hmm. in this book, right? So the neighbor ladies who live, you know, two cottages down from Peter, and they're described as going to see an exhibit in Glasgow the morning of, and, you know, they ran into somebody on the train and so forth. And then there's also Mr. Gowan's maid, mm-hmm. who I think we could, maybe we can wrap up by talking a bit about her. Yeah. yeah. Sounds good. Yeah, because she's the other key witness sort of thing yeah and once again you know because she's a servant this is a Mm -hmm. this is one of the few places where bunter shows up in the book right because Mm -hmm. peter this is a job for bunter this is a job for bunter seducing housemates (laughs) (laughs) he's a man of many talents and this is one of them yeah i love that bunter first calls her uh the young person you know he's talking about you know this the young person you know confessed to me that she had some cause for dissatisfaction like he basically goes over and like ingratiates his way in and like gets her to talk about all of this stuff mm-hmm. and doesn't he take her out to like dinner or something Di- the cinema yeah yeah he takes her to the movies mm-hmm. and the th- what i yeah. think is funny is that he does this in anticipation right like peter hasn't asked him to go ingratiate himself to anyone in, in gawain's household yet but he's just like ah oh, gawain is a suspect and i know you know, mm-hmm. this maid. Mm-hmm. And so I am going to go preemptively mm-hmm. get information. And it's the the maid's information breaks Gowan's original alibi, right? Because yeah. the housekeeper and butler had kind of been covering up and said like, mm-hmm. oh no, he, you know, he'd gone gone. He's out of town. Of... He, he left this day and she's exactly. like, no, there was someone in the upstairs room. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's interesting because the so she tells Bunter this whole story about you know there was a room that mm-hmm. she wasn't allowed to go into and it mm-hmm. it smelled like disinfectant. Uh-huh. Well, I love that like it's an upper hallway that she would normally never go into, and they were careful right. to tell her not to go into it. So of course she, she went immediately, into it. yeah, right. And yeah. she's like, it's, it's it smelled like disinfectant, and you know, then she saw an apparition like all bandaged uh-huh. up and yeah, and this this horrible face. It's very sort of Jane Eyre almost, you know, it's very like... Yeah, it's very, it's so wrapped in gothic. Sensational. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Whimsy even says like, Bunter, your narrative style would do credit to the Castle of Otranto, right? And then later on he says, (laughs) this case resembles the plot of a Wilkie Collins novel. So really those, (laughs) 
those right. <laughs> mid-Victorian sensation gothic-y yeah. yeah. Like, women in the house. Well, and at one point, Whimsy's just like, could you cut out some of the fancy adjectives and say plainly what the face was like? And he's like, <laughs> I had not myself the opportunity of observing the face, but the impression <laughs> produced on me by the young woman's observations, you know? And I like specifically like the callbacks to like to Wilkie Collins sharing you and I mention or you mentioned specifically in our, our some of our Strong Poison episodes that Sayers had gotten complaints about uh, there being too too much romance and not enough mm-hmm. mystery in Strong mm-hmm. Poison and that Five Red Herrings is kind of her response. And I do think it's kind of telling that there's this callback to a historical mystery, like to Wilkie Collins, as opposed to the kind of the modernist approach that hmm. like Sharon, Sharon, you are you are the, the modernist expert <laughs> Is there any in this book? Um, I mean, modernism, you know, is not, it's not a technique necessarily, mm-hmm. right? I wouldn't want to characterize it as like, is there or isn't, do, does it show up right. or not? But, but I think like, yeah, when I call the book old fashioned, I do think that it recur- this book recurs to a much more, like a style that we associate much more with like, you know, either the Victorian country house novel or or like yeah going all the way back to the regency period in Jane Austen or I would say even it it reads a little bit to me like turn of the century Henry James but it's definitely I think working much more in the realist mode of yeah observing an entire society of people you know mm-hmm. in in kind of this microcosm of a village and mm-hmm. digging into motivation and human nature and so forth um it's I think it's much more interested in doing that than doing any kind of like stylistic experimentation with the I would say exception of I think the book does some interesting things with time, which mm. maybe we get into next time. But yes, in a nutshell, I would say this is this is much more of a, a realist novel to me than a than a modernist yeah. one, at least in style. Yeah, it does like very little about it feels experimental or mm-hmm. out of all of Dorothy L. Sayers books. This is the one that I feel could have been written by someone else. Yeah, right. Yeah. Which is which is interesting because the plot hinges on style being something that can be replicated, oh. right? Like the, yes. the artists yeah. had to be able to the murderer had to be able to replicate Campbell's painting style. Mm-hmm. And like there's this conversation about like, yes, Campbell's art is good, but it's also generic. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how yeah. I feel about this book that like it's good, that's but there's good something point. about yeah. it that's a little bit generic. And yeah, it's not inimitable the way that right. like I feel strong poison right. is. Right. And yeah. I think there's a whole conversation about aesthetics there that we could maybe get into a bit next time as well of, mm-hmm. you know, is is the ultimate artist the one who can mimic anyone or the one mm-hmm. whose style is inimitable? Because I, I forget who it is. Is it Graham who says like his problem is he can he can do a passable, you know, Ferguson, he could do a passable Campbell etc and he's like but I don't have a style of my own and that's mm-hmm. where I fall short yeah yeah you love how I was just like yeah let's start wrapping things up and then I just start throwing things out <laughs> <laughs> let's start but also how many rabbit trails can I start <laughs> yeah 
We can maybe pick yeah. up there next time. I'm very invested in the question of replication in these books. Um, as you yes. know, we will probably have an entire episode when we get to Gaudi Night about <laughs> like mass produced objects. But um, yeah, anyway. Yes. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a really good point because this is like the least Sayers ish Sayers, yeah. you know? Yeah. All right. Well, we will we'll leave it there. Uh, so. Okay. <laughs> something to look forward so, to next time listeners yes yeah uh thank you angela for joining us and angela's yes, going welcome. to be joining us again for our next episode yes. discussing the second half so I, can, so I can talk about all the clues yes <laughs> and that episode will be much easier i think because we're mm -hmm. we are going to reveal the who done it and all the solutions and we will get to the part where lord peter catches a fish in the meantime, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram as at WhimsyPod. That's Whimsy spelled W-I-M-S-E-Y. Our website, where you can find transcripts for each episode, as well as links to any resources we mentioned on today's podcast, is asmywhimsytakesme.com. Our logo is by Gabby Vicioso, and our theme music was composed and recorded by Sarah Mahalik. If you've enjoyed this episode of As My Whimsy Takes Me, we'd be really grateful if you would give us a rating and leave us a review on iTunes or on your podcaster of choice. We also hope that you'll tell all of your friends who love Dorothy L. Sayers as much as we do. See you next time for more Talking Piffle.